Uh, This morning, we're going to be in Ephesians. So if you would, open up your Bibles to Ephesians uh, chapter 2. We're going to spend a little time in here this morning. Um, Ephesians 2, starting in uh, verse 11. So let me read that for us. It'll also be on the screen behind me. Ephesians 2, verse 11. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father." So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, and whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Um. A few months ago, I came across an interview that was titled, The, the, the Search for a Church That Isn't a Church. And uh, the title of itself was enough to kind of pique my interest. I mean, what, is that, what does that mean to search for a church that isn't the church? Uh, but the interview itself was, uh, it was illuminating. It illuminated how I'm sure many feel about church and about community. The whole thing uh, is fascinating, but one line in particular caught my attention. The interviewee stated, If I could find a church, and this may already exist, where the Sunday school is very low on the beliefs of Jesus and very high on the community part, that's what I'm looking for. I thought that was very interesting. And so instead of going to church, uh, this guy takes his daughter to the farmer's market every Saturday for community. And yet he even recognizes something still isn't quite right. There's something about the community that gathers weekly at the farmer's market that can't quite substitute the church's weekly gathering. He's still on the, church, on the search for something. What I want to argue this morning is that that something he's searching for is the church, the fellowship of people who have been redeemed by Jesus Christ. That whole b- belief about Jesus is pretty, pretty crucial. Uh, people who have been redeemed by Jesus and are bound together by his word and spirit. That's the church. I want to remind us, even though I'm, I'm sure many of us are aware of this, that we really do need the church. We really do need the Christian community. Uh, we need the church because, and that could just be the title, in fact, it is just the, the title. We need the church because, um, and we could answer this actually in all kinds of ways, but I want to look at, at three things in particular that I think we see here in Ephesians 2. We need the church because the church is a spiritual worshiping community, a sanctifying community, and a witnessing community. So let's, let's consider how Ephesians 2 here um, uh, uh, illuminates these realities for us. 
Uh, Ephesians as a whole is, an, is, is incredible. Highly recommend, 10 out of 10. <clears throat> uh, chapter two in particular is very deep and, and, and rich. And I bet most of us are familiar with the passage that came right before this. And uh, I wanna read part of this um, starting in, in, in verse four because it, it really sets the whole context for this. But so often we stop at, at, at verse 10. So let's, let's read verses four to 10 and then think about how that leads into the passage that we just read. Verse four says this, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You were dead in your sins, but Christ in his great love out of sheer undeserved grace has made you alive. You can't do anything to earn this. It's a gift. You only receive it in faith. Each of us should latch onto this truth. Hold it more dearly in your hearts than anything else. You cannot work your way into God's favor. Instead, he comes down and grants you his blessing just because, just because his love is that immense. But we don't stop at that truth, right? After talking about how we are saved by grace alone through faith alone, Paul starts talking about what? The church. Salvation is personal, right? You personally must have saving faith in Jesus, but salvation is not just individual. There's a big difference there. It is personal, but it's not just individual. God saves a community. If the blood of Jesus covers your sins, and if he has brought you to himself, guess what? You are now connected not only to Christ, but to everyone else who is connected to Christ. It's, it's kind of like when you, when you marry someone, you don't just get them, you get uh, the, their friends and family. They're part of the package too. Sometimes for better and sometimes for not. My case, it's totally better. <laughs> a lot of my wife's family comes to church here too, so this is it. <clears throat> the crucial verse here uh, is, is in verse 18. It says, for through him, that's through Jesus, being united in, in him, in his life, death, and resurrection, through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. We have access in one spirit to the Father. Uh, this, uh, Paul says, uh, makes us fellow citizens of the same kingdom, God's kingdom. We get to experience together the merciful, just reign of God. Paul says this makes us members of the same household, God's family. We get to experience together his loving comfort. This makes us a holy temple, a dwelling place for God. We get to experience together the life-giving presence of the Spirit. This is Paul's logic. Logic, you are saved by God's grace through faith in Jesus into the church. And this actually is the, the biblical pattern. God's covenants are always communal. So yes, now in Christ, you can go straight to God yourself. You can know him and experience him personally. And I pray that all of us do. But also the New Testament more often talks about us experiencing God 
together. Yes, you personally, individually, uh, are a temple of the Holy Spirit. Paul uses that language in 1 Corinthians. But more often than not, the New Testament would say that we are a temple of the Holy Spirit. Without the church, you're more like a single brick. What's that good for? Smashing a window? I don't know. But a church centered on Jesus as its cornerstone and bound together with the Holy Spirit as its mortar uh, is transformed into a beautiful temple filled with the life and love of God. Because we are bound to Christ and thus bound together, our bond is spiritual. What connects us is the word of the gospel. It's not just a human bond that we share. It's not just something that we, have in, that we like that we share in common. It's a spiritual bond, the gospel, that we are all sinners saved solely by the grace of God. This bond far surpasses any human bond because it, it removes pride from the equation, actually. The gospel crushes pride. You have no reason to boast, right? That's what Paul says earlier in Ephesians 2. You didn't save yourself. Uh, a German pastor and theologian, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, said it well. He says this, Without Christ, there is discord between God and man and between man and man. Christ became the mediator and made peace with God and among men. Without Christ, we should not know God. We could not call upon him nor come to him. But without Christ, we also would not know our brother, nor could we come to him. The way is blocked by our ego, right? Our pride, our self-importance. Christ opened up the way to God and to our brother. Now Christians can live with one another in peace. They can love and serve one another. They can become one, but they can continue to do so only by way of Jesus Christ. Only in Jesus Christ are we one. Only through him are we bound together. This is why we need the Christian community, the church, even more than other forms of community, because Christ himself is our peace. We're united in him. Our ego, our pride uh, is, is set aside and we can receive people for who they are without any need to manage or control or use others. That's a, that's a pretty crucial part that because our, our pride is set aside because he's the one who saved us, not us, we can receive people for who they are without any need to manage them, to control them, to use them. That's not true of other communities. It's not true because in this community, God himself is making us. He is the one changing us and forming us as he sees fit. We don't have to control others. Instead, we get to enjoy just being priests before God. We get to enjoy uh, being his sons and daughters and being brothers and sisters with one another. And so rather than live against one another, we get to just join together in worship. That's why I love Sundays. We get to just come together and worship. Doesn't that sound like a richer, more meaningful goal than the goal of the farmer's market community, right? Maybe we should change our point here, and we should change the point here. Uh, rather than saying that we need uh, the church because it is a spiritual worshiping community, we need to say that it is the spiritual worshiping community. It is the only community which is bound to Christ by the Spirit. And this gives us peace and access to God, and peace and understanding with one another. So the church is, our, is the spiritual worshiping community. The church is also a sanctifying community. What does that, what does that mean? Well, you know, I say all this about, you know, it's peace with God, peace with one another, but let's not pretend that the church is this like kumbaya, we all hold hands all the time, and uh, just great kind of place. If you think that, you probably 
have not really been actively participating in the life of a church. Um, <clears throat> here's the thing. Let me, let me caveat this um, by saying I, I love people. I love all of you. Also, people are terrible. <clears throat> Uh, in some church traditions, I would say, like, now turn to your neighbor and say, you're terrible. But you don't need to do that. Uh, I'm not going to have you do that because you don't need to because you know it already. Deep down, you know people are terrible. <clears throat> uh, there's a more theological way of saying this, too. Uh, and that is to say that uh, even though we are all sinners uh, saved by grace, we do still sin. Even though we have been declared righteous, that's called justification, when God says, hey, Christ's innocence is yours. Even though we have been declared righteous and we've been justified, it's also true that we are being made righteous. That, that's called sanctification, where God says, now, now Christ's holiness over time is going to come onto you and you're going to become more and more like him. Justification happened in the past. Sanctification is ongoing into the future. That is true of the church. So the church is made of real people who really sin. We still gossip about one another. We still hold grudges. Sometimes we kind of maybe even unconsciously ignore certain people and show favor to others, so on and, and, and so forth. But the answer to the problems in the church is not no church, but more. More church. More, and let me be more, more specific, more Jesus-centered community, which should be the church. More deep spiritual relationships. That's the answer here getting closer to Jesus with others because, because God made us to be relational. So the way he transforms us is through relationships. So it is in the church among the people of God that we are sanctified, that we grow and mature in the faith and become more like Jesus. Notice the very careful language of Paul here in Ephesians 2. In verse 21, he says that the church grows into a holy temple, grows into it. And then in the following verse, he says, you also are being built into a dwelling place, uh, place uh, for God by the Spirit. Transformation doesn't magically happen. It happens by being before the Lord in community and allowing his grace to wash over you and cleanse you and transform you. If you think about it, you always become like those you are around, Right? Uh, in some ways, you kind of absorb them into you. And this happens both with trivial, silly things and with more serious things. So, for example, I noticed recently that uh, my wife pretty uncharacteristically describes something as bonkers. And I realized, I was like, why is she saying that word? Oh, I realized I'm saying that word a lot more. And I'm saying that word a lot more because I share an office with Dave who uses that word all the time. It is just bonkers how much he uses bonkers. Um, but guess what? The same thing happens with gratitude. And it happens with patience. And it happens with forgiveness. When you are around people who, who, who have those qualities, you start to get that into you a little bit. Uh, Stanley Hauerwas is a theologian who wrote about the necessity of Christian community. And it, it's kind of funny because he wrote about it before actually discovering and being in community himself. But when he actually uh, jumped into community, this is what he, what he says, what he recounts in his memoir. He, he, he says how uh, he had been uh, trained to be a theologian at Yale. He's a pretty smart guy. He actually taught at Notre Dame, super smart. But then he says at Notre Dame that he began the slow, agonizing, 
and happy process that made him a Christian. Now he recognizes that. He's like, no, I, I, I definitely was a Christian, but it's, it's in this time when he was really in community that he really began to grow in Christ's likeness. And he says this, and this I think is, is so great. I could just spend the time unpacking this quote. He says, there is no substitute for learning to be a Christian by being in the pre- presence of significant lives made significant by being a Christian. There's no substitute for learning to be a Christian than by being in the presence of significant lives that are made significant by being a Christian. But then he, he wants to make sure we understand what he means by significant lives. He says, the lives of significance I began to notice were lives of quiet serenity, capable of attending with love to the everyday without the need to be recognized as making a difference. That's just so good, isn't it? Just by being with in the presence of lives that are significant because they're with Jesus. That's where he saw change in his life. So he, he goes on to recount how by living alongside real Christians, really following Jesus, he better understood and grew to serve the poor, to value the mentally disabled, and to be a better friend, among other things. That didn't happen by reading about it or thinking about it or wishing it to become true. It happened because he walked out his faith in Christ with others who were walking out their faith in Christ. And they grew up into a holy temple in the Lord. They became more Christ-like together. That's what we're aiming for here. This is one more reason why we need each other. Each and every one of us, we are all members of the same body, all contributing to the health of that body. Some of you are supremely patient people. And guess what? I need you in my life. Some of you are full of energy and have an incredible work ethic. I need you in my life. Some of you pray fervently. I need you in my life. The biblical principle here is captured in Proverbs 27, 17. Iron sharpen iron, and one man sharpens another. That's what we're talking about. That's why we need each other. And if you're thinking, well, I don't, I don't think I really contribute much, wrong. You're wrong. Every person matters. Every part of the body matters. If, if uh, the, the, the parts of the body and the body grow together, actually, if, if a part of the body isn't growing, the whole body is unhealthy, right? Think about that with your own body. If, if one part of you wasn't growing, that's an unhealthy body. It's, that's true of the church also. And I don't know, maybe your gift to the body is humility, not thinking too highly of yourself. And we could all use more of that. That's actually kind of the essence of Jesus' whole way of being. Just read Mark 10, 45, and Philippians 2, 6 through 11. We need you. You are needed in this body for it to be a healthy, sanctified body. Christian counselors Richard Plass and James Cofield point out a number of areas that are sanctified in us, specifically in community. Um, First, they point out that participation in the church helps us confront our selfishness. That's true. They argue that only community exposes your desire for life to conform uh, to, to what you want when people don't do what you want, right? People don't do what you want. They don't act like you want, and that like rubs you the wrong way, and it's like, oh, why are you feeling like that? Because your selfishness is being exposed. That happens in community. Uh, second, we learn to surrender and serve. As we follow a savior who surrendered his life and served those around him, we will more and more learn how to actually do that 
from one another as we are the hands and feet of Jesus showing how we serve and surrender our lives to one another. As we bear one another's burdens, as we give of ourselves, we are teaching each other how to do that. We confront our selfishness, we learn to surrender and serve. Third, we discover how to trust God in the middle of suffering. We do that together. I, I can't tell you how many times I've been encouraged by those who have held fast to the Lord in the middle of terrible circumstances. I in some way kind of absorb that faith for myself and I'm better prepared to do the same when, when circumstances uh, don't go as planned, when circumstances haven't gone as planned. I've been better prepared because of being encouraged by my faith family. Fourth, we uh, inform and strengthen a particular character. Like I already kind of mentioned, other people's patience and generosity and such kind of rub off if we are willing and open to receive others deeply into our lives. That's kind of the whole caveat here. This is only if we are willing to receive people into our lives. And fifth, we begin to live lives of humility and gratitude as we encounter those significant lives made significant by their closeness to Jesus. We begin to see the inherent worth of others and value them for the gift that they are to us. We can praise them and celebrate them and, and not feel hurt, not feel like we're being overlooked because we just love one another. We learn to do that in community. We need the church because the church is a sanctifying community, making us more and more like Jesus. Lastly, we need the church because the church is a witnessing community. One of the things that strikes me most about um, Ephesians 2 here, uh, verses 11 through 22, is how much peace and reconciliation are at the center. <clears throat> because the church is filled with and covered by the love and grace of God, we can ex extend that to others, even our enemies, knowing how much love and grace uh, uh, in Christ God has shown us, his former enemies. Love to the stranger, let alone love to the enemy, is not common to most communities, but it's central to the church. We are a people called to share this love of God. So from God's love, peace begins to emerge as people learn to forgive and to do justice just as they have been forgiven. And, and where peace emerges, hope begins to grow. Hope that a community of love and peace rooted in the presence and promises of God can flourish. Now here in Ephesians, Paul doesn't mention joy, but I don't know how a community like this doesn't respond in joy. And to be fair, Paul talks about joy in plenty of other places. So what characteristics do we have growing in the church here? Peace, hope, joy, love. Hmm, that, should, that should sound familiar. That should remind you of the Advent, calendar, uh, 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 the Advent candles that we had set up over here for the past four weeks because those, those represent the four themes of Advent because this is what God's kingdom consists of. This is the characteristics of his kingdom and his kingdom is breaking in in the church now. We get to experience some of, of those things. So when we build our lives together on the solid rock of Christ, and allow his spirit to bind us to him and to each other. And when these characteristics begin to flow out of us, we witness to the whole world uh, about the good and beautiful and true and powerful God that we serve. Our comfort in suffering, our radical forgiveness and surprising unity, our unexpected humility, our outgoing hospitality, our deep love, all of these shout God's greatness to the world. 
We need each other to witness, to call attention to God's glory so that all may share in his eternal life. Um, Molly Worthen is a scholar and journalist specializing in evangelical history. But it's interesting that even though she studies evangelicalism and Christianity, up until a year or so ago, she would not have considered herself a Christ follower. As she began to write an article about a Southern Baptist megachurch in North Carolina, however, she formed a friendship with a pastor there. Uh, and and who, who over time, this pastor, um, and with the help of some friends and some good books, uh, began to convince her that Jesus really did rise from the dead and that that really does change everything. But she couldn't fully commit to Jesus. It was only after going to church and experiencing Jesus-centered communal worship, only after the singing and praying of the saints witnessed to her, did she finally give herself to Jesus. In her own words, I think actually I could not have become a Christian in any other context. How crazy is that? The church witnessed to her. So just think, whenever you sing, you're seeing the gospel over those with no faith or maybe with weak, tired faith. That's one of the things that, you do, that we do when we gather together. Ayan Hirsi Ali was born in Somalia and experienced what life under radical Islam was like. She was a devout believer herself until the uh, oppression emotionally and, and spiritually crippled her and actually she was physically beaten down under, under that as well. She escaped to the Netherlands where she earned a political science degree and began speaking out against Islam, but also against all religions. And she kind of became part of what's known as the new atheism movement. So if you've heard of guys like uh, Christopher Hitchens or Richard Dawkins, she was like all on board with, with that, kind of in the speaking circuit with them. Um, she also eventually served in the Dutch parliament, fighting especially for the rights of women. But about a month and a half ago, she published an essay called why I am now a Christian. That's awesome. <laughs> but her answer is, is kind of two parts to it. For one, she sees secular tools, and, and she kind of calls out like military, economy, technology, pol politics. She sees those things as unable to cure the world of its greatest maladies, its greatest problems. She, uh, and she has discovered that the Western values she holds most dearly and has been fighting for human dignity and freedom are actually rooted in Christian thinking and practice, not the enlightenment, not the atheistic thinking that she, like she thought it, it was. But the second part of her conversion, she says this. She says, yet I would not be truthful if I attributed my embrace of Christianity solely to the realization that atheism is too weak and divisive a doctrine to fortify us against our menacing foes. I have also turned to Christianity because I ultimately found life without any spiritual solace unendurable, indeed very nearly self-destructive. Atheism failed to answer a simple question, what is the meaning and purpose of life? So you see the church as a whole, and actually in her case, uh, the, the, the church over centuries growing into Christ witnessed to her. It spoke to her of what freedom in Christ might actually look like for a whole society. And it showed her that life has actual meaning. She closes her essay by noting, this is why I no longer consider myself a Muslim, apostate, 
but a lapsed atheist. And she says, of course, I still have a great deal to learn about Christianity. I discover a little more at church each Sunday. I love that. Here's someone who's very intelligent, who has spent a lot of her lifetime combating Christianity, and she's coming here and just saying, I still have a lot to learn, but you know what? Every Sunday, we gather, and I learn more from the community. That's awesome. I have at, at least three other stories where the witness of the Christian community drew individuals into Christ. I don't have time to share them. I have a story of how actually um, uh, some, some churches in uh, East Germany during the time of the Soviet Union actually, through their witness and, and promotion of peace, actually helped the downfall of the USSR. It's a story that's not in a lot of history books. It's an awesome story. The church's witness matters. I don't have time to tell all these stories, and even though they're great stories, but I don't, actually I don't have to tell them. Because I doubt uh, I, I need to because you have your own story of the Christian community witnessing in your own life. Many of you have already experienced the peace and love of Christ in the Christian community and can testify to the grace of Christ in your life. If we, if we spent some time here, you, we, we, we could talk together about those who have discipled you, who have pointed you to Christ, friends who have walked alongside you and you've become a little more like them and they've become a little more like you as you've been sanctified together. People who have supported you through really hard times. Many of you have those stories, but maybe you've forgotten that. And so what hopefully this is this morning is, is just a reminder that you need to recommit to the body of Christ. We need to open up ourselves to deep spiritual relationships so that we can experience the peace of Christ together. And to those who have not experienced this yet, welcome. Welcome to Christ Church. You're invited into life with Jesus with us. Come worship with us. Know the grace and love and peace of Jesus and learn to trust that you can't save yourself but you don't have to because he did. And begin to become like him in this messy and imperfect community. Jump in. You don't just show up on Sunday, but if you are going to be here, be here (coughs) truly. Be here in in body and in mind and spirit. Serve alongside others. Jump into a praxis group or a Bible study. Become a covenant partner. There are so many ways to get connected to this body and to begin to experience life with Christ in a community. You can't do it alone, and you don't have to anyways. Let others speak the good news of God's grace over you. It seems only fitting to end uh, with a communal effort. Uh, I want to read a poem from my friend um, and fellow Praxis member and covenant partner and generally awesome person, Joey Hanesco. Uh, actually, I think the thing that uh, he would love about me reading this is less like the content of the poem, but actually that something of his love of poetry is maybe getting into me. I think that's probably true. Uh, uh, even though this poem is great, and each time I read it, it, it just moves me more and more. Uh, it's called The Song of Saints and Martyrs, and I just want to read it for you this morning, and if you would just receive it. The Song of Saints and Martyrs. I hear you sing praises to the one who offers goodness, grace, and mercy, but I know you, and I know you have seen no goodness, grace, or mercy lately, but still I hear you sing. The sound of hope in a congregation sounds like shouts of desperation, like gasping for air as mouth rises above water, lungs filled, but you use your breath to sing. 
In moments of mourning, every morning new mercies, new fears. I see your knees on sand, shoulders touching shoulders, a soldier raising a sword-wielding hand, swipes just above your shoulders, and still I hear you sing. Until the day death dies, white horse, sword-wielding breath, goodness, grace, and mercy rain down. Heaven rain now, where is pain now? There I'll hear you sing. Let's pray together. God, you are so good. I love that even though it, like this poem kind of gets to, the, there's a day coming when we will sing for all of eternity this song over each other of the goodness and grace of God. And we'll get to do that without, without pain, without pretense, without any of the, the, the sin that we bring into that song. Even though one day we will sing that song perfectly, even now we get to sing that over each other. Even now, uh, when we gather like this on a Sunday or when we gather in homes scattered uh, across here or when we go into our jobs, we get to, in a sense, sing this song over each, uh, each other that you have loved us with an, an unstoppable love, an infinite love that finds us even when we were, were, were your enemies and makes us your sons and daughters. I pray this morning that uh, we would receive this word, that, that we would remember that, that you have saved us into a body of believers. Uh, this is a, a, a community. We have brothers and sisters in, in the faith that we get to share our life with and, and that we get to share your life with. Even though this community and every community, every church is as messy and as sinful, would you make us more like you? Would you perfect your bride so that on that last day, your bride would be beautiful before you? Help us to be vulnerable with one another, to open up ourselves to uh, messy relationships, but help us open us, uh, ourselves up to, even more importantly, Jesus-centered relationships so that we would come to know you above all, 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 all else. So God, as we go from here, let that, be, let that be what we take into the new year, that we have a gospel community and that we wanna be a part of this gospel community. Lord, we love you. Thank you for all that you have done and are continuing to do in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.